You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am your host. Today's guest is my good friend, the wonderful, the delightful Carly Minardo. Carly, thank you for being here today. Lewis, thank you for having me. Thank you, Evan, too. Oh, Evan is also here. You should know Evan is doing double duty today as both our <laughs> producer and our engineer. Let's all quietly take a moment and give Evan a round of applause in what, wherever we are. He's bowing. He's bowing. Thank Truly you for doing gracious. that, everyone. Very yeah. nice. All right, so Carly. Yes. I don't know uh, um, if you've heard, we're doing a slightly different format for the podcast. We're doing the podcast in three parts. We're going to open up by having a, a, a general chat. Okay. And then, in the middle part of the podcast, we're going to do a lightning round of monologue hotspot involving both you and I. I'll explain the rules of that when we get to it. Okay. And then, we're going to have you improvise. <laughs> I'll give you a scenario for a scene to improvise. Um, you improvise, I don't improvise, I simply watch and enjoy when you improvise, and that's how we're going to do the format. Are you ready? I'm ready. Fabulous. Carly Minardo. Yes. How did you get involved in the world of improvisation? Oh my God, I wasn't ready. Oh, sorry. I wasn't ready for this question. Oh, jeez. Why did, you said you were ready. I, I lied. Asked you. I okay. lied. I, we'll ease off. We'll back up. <laughs> no, I'm fake until I make it. We'll uh, no, up. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, so I, um, I used to watch shows at UCB a lot, actually. And um, they were just this kind of... It felt very removed from something I would ever do. It was just like a fun alternative to seeing a movie or something. Um, And the idea of doing it seemed absolutely terrifying, and I wasn't interested. But then a friend of mine was the accompanist for Choral Rage, Mm. um, which was a musical team at the time here at Magnet. And, And that was... That was how I like kind of fell in love with uh, Justin Moran, who was also on Featherweight. Uh, so through that, I like uh, I, I started watching megawatt shows, and they were just so much fun. And especially like having kind of like a personal connection of like being friends with Justin and seeing how fun he made it look. I was like, oh, I have to try this. And I saw that there was a free class, and I signed up for the free class. I also signed up for level one before I signed up for the free class. Very bold. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was like, for some reason, I thought I was hedging my bets even though I was betting everything. That's like going to an ice cream store in the West Village <laughs> and asking for a large cup of green tea ice cream. Yeah, and then asking, and then to asking taste for a it. taste, yeah. a sample. Yeah, oh good, I don't have to throw this thing out now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you remember, like, w- when was this a... This would be like... This would have been... I remember my first level one class was November 1st, 2010? 2011. 2011. Do you remember what pulled you to UCB to begin with? Was it just the reputation of the theater? Um, I I think, yeah. I I think it was like Chris knew about it. Um, Chris Hastings? Christopher Hastings, my husband, yes. Uh, uh, Not at... Yeah, not at the time. We were just dating at the time. It wasn't that serious. But we went to see a couple of shows, and it was just like it became like a pretty reliable and like affordable. Like once I saw it once and I was into it, it was like very easy to just keep going back. But um, again, it wasn't something that I felt 
really passionate about, so I didn't necessarily want to seek out other places just yet. Yeah. It was just like, oh, this is like the theater that I see this type of thing at. Um, so there was actually a big gap between me not seeing shows at UCB and coming to Magnet. I think there was probably at least a year where I hadn't even seen an improv show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was just like really busy with work at the time. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't go out a lot at night. Um, yeah. Do you remember when it went from something that you're not interested in to something that seems fun to becoming pretty fully immersed in the comedy world? I should back up and say Carla Minardo is an original member of uh, Metal Boy. <laughs> They're all original members of Metal Boy, except for Matt. Yeah. Um, so, so Carla's an original member of Metal Boy. Uh, uh, also plays with the cast on Saturday nights. Yeah. Is also largely responsible, along with Nolan Constantino, for mm-hmm. the visual look of the Magnet Theater. Pretty much any any uh, graphic image that you can think of that you associate with the Magnet is the work of Carly's mind. I should have prefaced with all of that to begin with. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that you're deeply immersed in the world of comedy now. Yeah. I'm also. Yeah. I also have to mention my uh, sketch team, Dinosaur Jones. My goodness. I have apologize no, to everybody okay. on Dinosaur Jones listening to no, this. No, listen, the important thing is that we don't mention Suli during this interview. No problem. Because we I know he's listening, waiting for me to drop his name. We'll cut this part cut out. Cut this part. Suli doesn't exist. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I'm just going to put my cards on the table right now and say I don't care for Suli. Right. I'm going to repeat that later in the episode, so you won't know when, so you'll have to keep listening. But I am going to say once more that I just don't care for Suli. I think we can all agree Suli is not great. <laughs> oh, God. This is exactly what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Suli. Um, yes. So, uh, yeah, so I um, feel very lucky to have a lot of opportunities around the theater to play with different people. Um, and it, it was not always this, I was not always this immersed in it. I think, well, I started taking level one and I, did, I fell in love with it pretty quickly. Um, at the time, I was working from home doing freelance art, which is uh, very solitary. Um, and I missed having the sense of collaboration and like instant creative building with other people. So getting out of the house and like, meeting new friends and making things up with them on the spot and just playing was was so intoxicating and it was exactly what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, I started seeing Megawatt shows very regularly and I was just like, I'm going to do this. This is, that's like where I'm headed. I'm going to make it to that stage. Uh, and so then it was like kind of a foregone conclusion that I was just going to keep going with it until I made a, made a team. Backing up for a second, so yeah. uh, you are a graphic artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how did that happen? Uh, that's something that I've just always done. Um, I have a twin sister, and the two of us have been drawing since we could hold a pencil, um, and it was just kind of always what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to like watch TV and draw. Like there was always kind of multiple stimuli coming at us, but the, but drawing was always a part of what we did recreationally. And then I went to uh, school of visual arts and I studied animation. 
Um, and while I was going there, I started working on Venture Brothers, which was on, it's still on Adult Swim. Um, and yeah, it just like sort of one thing rolled into the next. Um, and yeah, and I'm still I'm still doing it. Can you walk me through? And this may not be possible. Oh gosh, I keep I'm sorry. My limbs flail <laughs> out of the control of my mind, and I keep plunking into the table. Uh, uh, Carly, just to paint a visual image for you <laughs> listeners out there, uh, is a spastic mess right now. <laughs> it's chaotic. She keeps on trying to drink this one cup of coffee. It's splashing everywhere. It is it's piping all into the equipment. Uh, uh, her face is all red. Yeah. But God bless her. She's a trooper. She won't stop. I want, I want this coffee in my mouth. <laughs> we made it up. There's no coffee, folks. We're oh, both we tricked water. you. Uh, That's for you, Suli. I don't care for you, Suli. <laughs> so, uh, uh, can you walk me through animation school? That was always something. Oh, sure. When I was when I was a kid, that was my dream of what I wanted to do. I don't think we ever talked about that. No, I don't think we did. But yeah, for a long time, uh, I. I I wanted to be an animator, and then I fell out of that. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, So what was it like? It was very cool. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I think I, I think I was expecting to go to animation school, and they were going to break down the process in a way that felt more like step one, step two, step three, but it was just kind of like you show up, and we had animation classes from day one, um, but they would just say, animate a bouncing ball, and they would give you, like, markers to hit, like, make sure, you know, they would talk about squash and stretch, the principle of, like, keeping the mass but changing the shape and things like that, but you, they didn't show you this is what drawing one looks like, this is what drawing two looks like. You just have to figure it out by doing it, and I think it's actually a little more intuitive than you would imagine, um, like, I don't know if you could break it down more in a more rudimentary way. It mm-hmm. really, you do benefit from just, like, studying and exploring and trying things out. Um, so, yeah, like, I, you know, I had, foundation year had, like, life drawing, which I wasn't ready for. <laughs> I was, like, a very sheltered uh, teenager, and I went into this class, and it was just called drawing, and I thought we were going to draw, like, a bowl of fruit, and this woman that I thought was one of my classmates got up in front of the class and took off her clothes. And I was like, oh, what's happening? Um, so life drawing uh, was, was a big part of it. And then animation class, story, we like did storyboarding. I had an acting class, too, that I still don't understand the purpose of. <laughs> because I don't really remember much apart from like I had to read a monologue. I didn't even have to memorize it. And it was supposed to be acting for animators because as an animator, you are acting through this character. You're like creating emotion through a drawing, but it, it's not like it has nothing to do with reading a monologue. You know, it's a very different kind of acting. So that always baffled me. That is something, I think I read that in Chuck Jones's autobiography about... Chuck Amuck. Chuck Amuck. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed. It's great. I learned a lot from it. There's actually a lot of great comedy advice in that book. I, I'm saying actually as if that's a big surprise. One, <laughs> one of the great comedy directors of the 20th century. But there's a lot of really good comedy advice in that. But he, he talks a lot in that book about how an animator has to be a great actor. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. It, that animating animating is... Oh, geez, no, I don't remember his phrase. Well, I'm trying to remember if he's the one that says acting with a pencil. But he, might, he might have said that. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it certainly is pithy, and it's, I think, exactly the phrase we're looking for here. Showing how the character feels by how the character moves. Mm-hmm. Not just making them move, but bringing their inner life mm-hmm. to life and, and being able to have an eye for those small details. And I've always been really like curious about the relationship between an animator's brain or an illustrator's brain and an improviser's brain, because I think that in another way, it's kind of our goal, too, when we're improvising characters, is to animate them. Yeah, I think so. And I think my kind of cartoon sensibility is a huge part of how I improvise. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I break a lot on stage because I can't believe I'm getting away with the things that I'm doing sometimes because it feels like I'm in a cartoon, which is just, you know, it's like the dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, there are a lot of animators that then be, like cross over into being voiceover artists. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, like the guy that did the voice, I feel bad that it, I think his name is Lou Romano, did the voice of uh, the main character in, Rat- in Ratatouille, not the rat. Mm-hmm. But um, he he like works for Pixar, and he was like the scratch track I think for the main character, and they just liked it and kept it. And then like yeah, there's a lot of crossover with that because you get in you, you know you you it becomes like a part of you, and you start behaving like these characters to sort of like pitch things and to understand how they have to move and emote, and there isn't as much of a separation there. You know, it's not like. It's not like fine art, I think, which is maybe a little more observational. Mm-hmm. But with animation, I think it's very immersive. Um, so I think there is this like kind of desire to to want to act through, you know, that's just natural for an animator uh, that makes improv very freeing. Mm-hmm. There, there. Um, I've noticed. Uh, for myself that I can play a much broader range of characters not when I'm on stage performing but when I'm uh, describing characters to other people (laughs) if it's just a casual conversation and I'm basically like pitching you the story Mm -hmm. I I can do 50 kinds of characters that I would never be able to access if it's like me giving a performance there's something to that idea of like you lose yourself in the image that you're presenting to somebody else and suddenly yeah. you have this like great range or this great freedom to to find these like different facets and whatnot that I always find really interesting. This idea yeah. of like doing it in quotations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yes. I think because I think you're you're kind of letting yourself off the hook. Mm-hmm. Like there's there isn't this pressure for this performance to be a perfect representation of the thing. It's just you excited trying to communicate with someone else. Yeah. Which is like kind of the ideal state for improv anyway, yeah. I think. But I think once you get on stage, there's like, you kind of can't help but feel there's an expectation for what people want to see or what they think you're going you to do. do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think especially someone like you who, you know, who teaches at the theater and who performs regularly, I think you become very aware of the sort of image that people associate you with. I kind of don't want to let them down on that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Walk me through more of animation school. Okay. I cannot hear too much <laughs> about this. So, so where do you go from bouncing a ball and life drawing classes? I remember my first nude study class. Oh, you had one? At Snug Harbor. At, oh, um, the art lab. 
Yeah, because I did a bunch of classes at, at Snook Arbor. Beautiful yeah. place on Staten Island. We're both a, from Staten Island. We're both from Staten Island. They have a gorgeous art lab at, at uh, Snook Arbor. Yeah. I was, I think, 13 or 14, the first time I saw a nude body in an art class. Oh, wow. And what was actually amazing to me was how not a big deal it was. Yeah. It took about a second for everyone in the room to kind of look at each other and be like, is this okay? And then you're just working, you don't care anymore. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing is, I mean, even if it's jarring at first, it's just sort of like, well, you're an adult. Like, yeah. we're trusting you all to be adults. And that's and then you do it. Yeah. Um, life drawing is indispensable for for animators, I think, because it just helps you understand, like, a lot of what you're animating is humanoid so it just helps you understand and in animation like first i don't know how interesting this is um in animation classes versus illustration classes where it's more detail focused the animators had to draw very quick poses so we would have like the model hit a pose for maybe 30 seconds before they were moving on whereas in in like an illustration class you would be studying the model for 10 20 minutes at a time sometimes up to an hour um, and, it, and like it was just about getting the sense of motion and mm-hmm. how one body part fits into another and where the motion is being led from, you know. Um, and they really encouraged you, like, don't always start your drawing with, like, the face and the head. Like, you should be able to start the drawing from anywhere. You should be able to start the drawing from, the, like, the foot or the hand. And it just forced you to build these roadways in your mind of which parts of the body led into what and what muscles like pulled and what muscles pushed it was very it was like it's an incredible education life drawing so when you are sitting down to draw do you feel your mind shifting like the way that you're looking at something do you feel it shifting from from like pedestrian everyday looking at somebody to now studying the angle of movement or studying where their center of gravity is or no actually i i think it is maybe the opposite i th- for me, I think when I sit down and I'm ready to draw, there's a little bit of like an oh shit kind of performance anxiety that I get where it's like making sure the stuff that I've been observing can come through and that my intention can come through, uh, you know, my stylus or my pencil. Um, but most of, most of like the observational stuff happens when I'm not drawing. Like I'll just stare at I'll stare at people. I feel bad. Sometimes I catch myself just staring at people, but it's because I'm I'm thinking of how I would, you know, draw their face or like I'll stare at I'll like space out staring at, you know, clouds or something, just trying to imagine like how would I animate these shapes moving or how would I like paint this. I think uh I think once you get into the habit of thinking of of observing things in that way, it sort of just becomes your usual way of looking at things. And then when it's time to draw, for me, it's, it's kind of like how do I focus and channel all of that stuff that I've been taking in this whole time? Mm-hmm. Um, and like what's the right like voice to use and what are the right shapes to communicate what I'm going for? Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Do, yeah. do, you, like, do you look for like a telling gesture when you're animating? Gesture is a very good word. I mean, that's like, that's what we use to describe like the movement of a pose. So yes, absolutely. It's like some, I mean, I, you can, I guess you can kind of say, I don't know if you're familiar with like the, the 
concept of an action line. You see these a lot in like how to draw cartoon books where it's like a diagonal line showing or like a curved line, just whatever sort of general shape and direction a character is taking when they are in a pose. That's kind of like a gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's always, it's kind of best to start with that. That's, that's like the spirit of what you're trying to get to. And if you're thinking of that, it's a lot easier to build off of that and add details to that than it is to start with very specific details mm-hmm. and then try to bend those to match the essence of what you're going for, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pausing because I, I really like I, this is actually something that I was just trying to describe about improv, I want to say but I guess it would just be too perfect if I could segue <laughs> what I just said into improv. But, it, it, but yeah, the basic idea of just like honoring the general action or energy of what you're going for and then building details on top of that rather right. than the other way around. Right. Well, I think that there is a strong connection between those two things. It, there, um, so like, I've been in... Uh, improv classes myself where it felt to me like you're like learning how to like improvise piece by piece or bit by bit Mm, mm -hmm. and you can get really hung up it's almost like improvising a scene as if you're in a life drawing class and you get super hung up on details Mm -hmm. and don't have a sense of the feel for the whole and and it doesn't feel animated Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like it moves and then I've had other teachers where it feels to me like I've learned how to do scenes or I've learned long form by kind of like, at first, it's very fuzzy. The mm-hmm. picture is like there, but it's out of focus. Yeah. And then over time, what you're learning is to just like bring it into like sharper and sharper focus. Yeah. But for me, it's like the details may not be there, but you have the basic feel for what the scene's about. And you have the basic feel for the energy of these characters. You have the basic feel for what you want. Mm-hmm. And I think that like at least in my mind, and please correct me if you disagree, um, like I translate the action line of a, of a character on a, on a page to mm-hmm. the want of a character on an improv stage. Yeah. Not everybody plays that way. Not every show lends itself to, to approaching it that way. Right. But like Metal Boy, for example, would be a team where, like I think of that team as being filled with strong action lines all the time. Yeah, thank, thank you. That's like a, that's a, I think that's a wonderful compliment I, because I personally feel like if I <clears throat> have that understanding of just the sort of gut of that character, then the details will, will come. If, as long as I kind of understand what's driving this character and I can, I can make decisions through that. Um, yeah, if I'm, if I'm like... And this is not a very like metal boy way to play. If I come out on stage and I'm like, I want this character to just be obsessed with forks and it's this kind of fork that they got when they went to this place and they got there on a boat. Like already I'm like writing too much and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be too clever. But if it's just like I get up on stage and I'm like, I like forks. (laughs) Just sort of see what, then then I probably can't help but discover this character collects forks because they like pick them up on the floor of the Staten Island Ferry and they just think they're beautiful. You know, like, it's just, yeah. If it, you've ever ridden the Staten Island Ferry, you know it's you know just it's chock full of full forks. Full of forks. If the Little Mermaid ever took the Staten Island Ferry, she, her mind would explode. Every asshole European tourist just leaves their forks lying around like the shits that they are. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't have Go to clean home. it up. Go home. 
We don't want you. We don't want your money in this city. Okay, yeah, we we're doing just money. fine without it's you. It's a free ferry. That's right. <laughs> Keep your money. <laughs> Incidentally, that's a free ferry as a concession to Staten Island, so that we wouldn't secede from the five boroughs in the early '90s because we were so pissed off about having a garbage dump. That was the concession. We got a free ferry. <laughs> it used to be that you had to pay to get off the island. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, neither here nor <laughs> no, there. It's a, it's just Fun island trip. I feel like there's so much to say, but. So what would be an example for you of, of um, like, a, a strong choice for yourself when you hit a show, something that you're confident you're going to be able to pursue this and find something really wonderful versus weak choice? So we have, like, that example of the fork of, like, the overwritten choice. My perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a strong choice. I don't know. I think it's usually, it's <clears throat> ideally, I feel like it's wanting something from someone that you're on stage with. Mm-hmm. Like, Wanting something that demands interaction and connection with your scene partner feels like a like a safe bet, you mm-hmm. know. Um, whereas I think when I get in trouble, if I'm making weak choices, it's just sort of me kind of trying to write like, what's an interesting quirk? Mm-hmm. What's something I haven't done before? What did I do last week? Let me do something really different from that. And like, I suppose. That can be helpful, but um, if I'm focusing too much on that, then I'm really doing a lot of looking inward and not paying attention to the person outside of me. Right. There's not like an immediacy to it. There's something right. about like when, when the stake involves the other person, then there's this immediacy to like every moment has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, you're, if you're focusing too much on this idea that you have, or if you're making choices based off of things that you're kind of over-intellectualizing, then you're going to be very closed off to what your scene partner is doing because you have an agenda. Mm-hmm. And I think as soon as you step out there with an agenda, that's like kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so what's the difference between, and I'm asking this partly as an improviser and partly as someone who uh, is really curious about animation and the, the hand-holding that exists between those two worlds. Sure. So the difference between an agenda versus a personality, let's mm-hmm. say, because I do think that strong characters have strong personalities. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes you will see newer improvisers trying to imitate mm-hmm. that approach to a strong personality, but it ends up being having an agenda on stage. So, so for you, what would be the difference between those two? I think, <clears throat> I think the difference, this is maybe a silly way to explain it, but I think the difference is like saying, I know what I'll do, versus hearing the suggestion and just adjusting to that and responding to that directly. I remember when I started out, I had a lot of... I would try to like get on stage with like a thing in my back pocket, like, I'm going to start a scene about this thing, and I'll find a way to relate it to the suggestion, and I think that's like a kind of a wrong-headed way to do it. Um, lately, as I grow more comfortable on stage, I, I'll, I'll like let those thoughts come because they're going to, but then I just, I'm like, okay... They're, they're, you know, these things are popping up in your head and, and that's fine, but make sure you really listen to like, what did the audience member just say and what does that make you feel in that moment and what are the people on stage with you doing? Um, I think that's, that, that to me is the difference. Like, an agenda just feels plotted mm-hmm. and closed and <clears throat> personality is just sort of the attitude that you, I think, feel when you hear the suggestion and then when you when you look around and then like the immediate kind of 
response you have to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I think that in improv, like if you're approaching scenes from a slightly organic place, mm -hmm. um, you kind of grow, step by step, you grow into the personality of your character. Mm -hmm. For me, it starts with a feeling. You get a suggestion. You get snow globe. Mm -hmm. and, and instead of just grabbing a snow globe and buying a snow globe, you just let snow globe make you feel nostalgic. Mm -hmm. And then you look at your partner and you look at them through this filter of nostalgia. And then, and then you kind of pursue that nostalgia until you get, you know, that they're going off to college and you're having a hard time saying goodbye. Yeah. And then you pursue that a little more fully and then you're showing up, sneaking into their window <laughs> in the dorm room in the middle of the night to, like, tuck them in or whatever. <laughs> right. And, like, a step at a time, you go from, like, a simple feeling to a little more of, like, a pronounced attitude to, like, a wholehearted point of view. And yeah. by the time you find that, there's this personality or this obsessive quality to a right. character that is, like, the hook that you're really looking for. Yeah. I'm always, I'm in awe of improvisers that can play obsessions well because it's, it, it ultimately feels like a very simple, light move to make that you just have to trust is going to work. Mm -hmm. I always think of like Phoebe Tires on mm -hmm. uh, the music industry. There's this, there was a show I saw years ago where I think she was just an old lady who wanted her grandson to fix her TV. And that was like, that was it for her. And it, I think early on that would have terrified me to play a character like that. But it was, it was hilarious. And, you know, she didn't have to scramble and make up a bunch of stuff to like fluff her character. Her character wanted her TV fixed and that was it. And that, it was it was great. It was a great scene. There's an art to that. And I have a hard time putting it into words, but it's this art. It's a single-mindedness. Yeah. I want this one thing, and it's mm -hmm. all I care about. You're pursuing that nonstop throughout the scene without being pushy. Yeah. Like, without pushing your scene partner around. Yeah. Your character is entirely driven by this thing. So there's this interesting quality of, like, single-minded sense of purpose, but also a softness to how you're going about doing it, a non-bullying energy. Yeah, and I think, I think part of what's, what's scary about playing a character like that is you can kind of get ahead of yourself and figure out, like, well, if this is what I want, if I want my grandson to fix my TV and he fixes it, what happens? Right. So you're already getting ahead of yourself and trying to write the end of this scene, and you can't you can't play it then. That's exactly, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting what a little bug that question mm -hmm. is in your mind because then you invent reasons why you can't go for the thing that you want because you're already second-guessing, so what am I going to do later on? Yeah. But that immediately means that you're not holding the course on it. Right, and yeah, and it, 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 that softness you talk about can't exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's Once you know, like... Once you kind of learn, start to learn how to improvise, you, you get these, you know, guidelines and rules in your head, and you start filling your mind with with those. Like you're, you, you like kind of, like the the little bit of information being a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden you, you, we improvise every day in our daily lives. But once once we put the framework around it of like this is a performance, and now I I know certain rules like don't make a transaction and don't teach and all of this stuff, you start, you start writing. I really think that's like kind of the enemy of, of improv is when you, 
when you intellectualize too much. Well, I think those are all bad rules. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, you know, like they're, who, I'm trying to remember who, who said this. It's, it's like you never look at a, when a show's good, it's just kind of alchemy and it works and you don't really spend time thinking about why that worked necessarily. Mm-hmm. But when something is bad, you try to come up with reasons why it was bad. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the rules come out of that. Big time. But, yeah, they're not good. <laughs> they're not good rules. No, good. Well, I, it, I think it comes down to the feeling of a show that's good versus one that's bad. And in the feeling in a show that's good, whether you're doing a transaction scene or whether you're strangers or whether you're whatever, there's a passion to it. And that sense of obsessiveness is mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, obsessiveness in the sense of like there's like a hunger to this character. Yeah. There's a drive and a hunger and a simplicity to yeah. it too. That's what makes me think of like cartoons. It makes me think of like Wile E. Coyote or like um, uh, like any of like the classic Warner Brothers stable where yeah. they're basically defined by one really clear specific thing right. that drives them o- through 30 years of animated history. <laughs> right. But it's so clear, and then the comedy is just how many ways they go about pursuing this one thing that they have. Yeah. And along with the clarity is, like, there's also a real ego to the characters. <laughs> like, I, I, I keep on, like, tiptoeing around, like, the best way to express this idea. But, like, I really do think that the core to, like, character comedy is in finding where your ego is. Finding where your pride is, your vanity. Mm-hmm. Because if you can nail that, then everything that comes out of your mouth is funny. Yeah. If you're able to access where, like, the selfishness of your character is, you're golden. Yeah. That's a really good way to think about it. And so, like, to me, it, like, goes back to, like, that hunger thing. You know, like... And then in a bad show, you can do a scene that's by the book, not a transaction scene, you're not asking a single question, but it's crap. And, And part of that reason is... It didn't have life to it. It wasn't yeah. animated, if you will. I will. There was no drive. There was no movement. Yeah. And there was no wanting to move anywhere, you know? Yeah. There was no need for anything. Yeah, it's just like, I'm going to, it's it's kind of going through the motions. Like, I'm going to get up there and do a scene, and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And, oh, I did it. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, there's, it's a little joyless, I think. I think of bad shows as living in a Newtonian universe, <laughs> whereas I think of good shows as living in a dynamic quantum universe. A bad show is just made up of a bunch of stuff and nouns that are like sitting there and blindly bumping into each other. Yeah. And a really good show is this dynamic, energetic, mm-hmm. shifting flux that's constantly moving everywhere. It's not made up of... That's how I think of it. I think that's a perfectly Lewis analogy. Thank you. And it's... Exquisite, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I had to do the obligatory acting class in college, too, and it was practically the same thing. Yeah? It was like, we got assigned the acting teacher who clearly did not want to work with us. It was like some kind of like slap on his wrist to have to work with the film <laughs> students. There's like a real... Oh, that's a thing. It's a real looking it down happens. their nose at, at, at non-actors. Yeah. Well, imagine an animation department existing within a film department yeah. and how the acting teachers felt about us. I can believe it. So you're handed a bunch of stuff without being like guided to learn, like, what, how does this help me at all? What is the point of this? I, we did the same thing, monologue yeah. exercises. That's like, I'm not filming monologues. Yeah. It was, yeah. And it was also... I actually, I really, I did like my freshman acting teacher very much, but I did have a summer program at SVA and the acting teacher told my class that we would never have careers. Jesus. We were teenagers. Where do people get off? Where do, like, 
It's like a golden rule that anybody who ever says you'll never work in this town again, that person will invariably fade into into Complete obscurity. obscurity. Yeah. yeah. It, where do people get off ever saying that to anybody else? How the hell do you know? I don't know, but I hope she's listening to this podcast right I'm now. Sure that Eating she is. crow. Yeah. I'm sure that she is. <laughs> uh, because she's a really big fan. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a terrible. That's what eventually, like when I when I fell out of drawing, I I, I had like five years where drawing was my like pretty much all consuming passion. All I did the second I got oh. home, I would just sit at my drafting table and and start drawing whatever. And uh, um, the big thing that threw me out of it was one inconsiderately phrased art teacher's comment to me in high school. No. Suddenly, like turned everything gray and then I was like I don't want to do this anymore. And it was just like it was just like one of these like snide thoughtless things that I'm sure meant nothing coming out of her mouth. I guess. But like I was in the exact frame of mind to not hear this thing and it was like such a non it was not a big deal. It was just like this this kind of casual thing of Who like yeah, person? but that's not a real drawing. That's not a sorry, I'm like shouting in heaven's ear. That's but that person should not be responsible for bringing art into anybody's lives, much less high school children. It's one of the reasons why I try to be extremely considerate and careful as a teacher of improv, because I think that you're in a very, very impressionable state of mind. Yeah. And even something casually tossed off can like really rattle you. Yeah, you're very vulnerable. Like We're asking people to be vulnerable, and then if you shit on that... It's like, congratulations, you just ruined that person's chance of loving this thing. Yeah. Um, I want the name of that teacher that said that to you. I don't even remember. Ha! I'm, I'm sure she's dead now. That's very Don Draper of you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I never look back. I'm sure she's dead. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is, that, is that cruel? She might be. It's not cruel. It's just know. like, man, that's uh, you know, that's justice for you. I mean, no hostility. And truth be told, I would not have made a great artist. Uh, yeah, um, disagree. A couple more questions. Do it. What did you do at Venture Brothers? What did I do? I did um, character and prop color key, uh, which um, so the show is animated in Korea, but it's produced. Uh, in New York and I was just responsible for um, designing the colors for all of the characters and props like I painted a lot of cars and uh, um, like different gadgets and stuff and then we would send those keys over to the animation studio over in Korea so they knew how to paint the animation that's what I did was that enjoyable? It was. It was. There was a lot more production to it than you'd think. Mm-hmm. You had to keep track of all of the props and characters throughout throughout the show, and like what um, you know, time of day they were showing up in. Like if you know, we, if this character, if Doctor Venture is using a pen, and I don't know what time of day it is, I'm going to maybe give them a pen that is lit to be outside in the day versus like in the lab at night. Mm. Um, so it was very. There was a, lo- a lot of production that was a part of it too. Just a colossal amount of thought that has to go into every minuscule detail. Yeah, that's animation for you. That's awesome. Yeah. What would be your dream? Well, okay. So two questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what is the what is what, what is your proudest Ooh. thing that you have created thus far? Ooh, that I've created. Yeah, or or been a part of. Oh, e- either or. Um. 
proudest thing? I don't know. That's a very that's a very tough question. I think I think it's just kind of um, I don't know if I could point to one thing, you know, because I've never like I haven't really I haven't made a film since college, and I haven't uh, like released any of my own graphic novels or anything like that. So I think the things this is corny, but the things that make me the proudest are the things that I create and release into the world that people uh, get engaged by and start asking questions about. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they're, you know, if I, if I make an illustration and I kind of have an idea of, like, what I, the story that I've developed around it, I love then showing it to someone and having them say, like, oh, this character, this character's up to this, and, like, oh, it's so interesting that these two have this going on, and maybe that's something that I didn't see. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, be- that's the best, because then you're affecting someone with something that you made, and they become a part of it, too, and it, it, like, it changes, and it has a life of its own. I think that's the most I ever want. Mm-hmm. I don't something. think that's corny at all. That's, that's <laughs> right on the nose. Who are your heroes? Who are my heroes? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> comedically or just? I guess artistically, in artistically. the in the broad sense, not necessarily sense. not necessarily uh, graphic arts, but I, I guess like who are the people who who kind of keep you honest with yourself? Ah, okay. Uh, well, uh, Christopher Hastings is a big one. Good answer. Yeah, he's uh, he um, is very disciplined and a very hard worker, and he's really just smart about what he does. He's like he he writes a lot more than he draws now, but um, it's just really inspiring to see him be so like dedicated to something and just understand it so well, and also be really funny. You know, to to like because, like I said, like being intellectual about something doesn't necessarily mean that you like have a spark for it. But I think he he has both. So, uh, but other other heroes, I would say um, Tammy Sager is a big hero of mine. She's one of the people that I would see a lot at UCB, and I was just like, it was just great seeing this awesome woman out on stage killing it. Um, Lauren Olson and Janish meeting out frolicking in LA right now. The, like, they're frolicking even as we speak. I know, as we speak, they're frolicking and I love them for it. Uh, like coming into the theater and seeing these two women be complete beasts on stage and so fearless was an amazing thing to have as a woman starting out in improv with like no <laughs> theatrical background whatsoever. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, Liz Artinian, who's my color supervisor on Venture Brothers, is a really talented artist and like really also very hardworking, incredibly talented artist that like demanded a lot of demands a lot of herself and demands a lot of the people she works with. I think people that know what they want and pursue it and and do it with integrity and with bravery are just the people that you know that inspire me and get me excited about doing those things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to talk a little more improv before yeah. we move on to our monologue hotspot portion. Whoa! 
my tag hands are ready. So I want to talk Metal Boy for uh, a minute or two. Okay, not Suli though. Not Suli. Okay. That's it. Should go without saying. When I mention Metal Boy, I'm excluding Suli <laughs> from the conversation. Uh, every team needs that... a difficult person on the team. You know? <laughs> Suli is that difficult person. I'm only doing this because the last time a Metal Boy was on <laughs> the podcast, we all like were excited about it and emailing back and forth, and it was. It was clear that we were all like listening for our names. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To be mentioned, and uh, I'm just I'm just ragging on Suli. Uh, we love you, Suli. We love you, Suli. Not me, but others do. <laughs> so, uh, Metal Boy, it kind of felt to me like a bunch of you kind of um, came into your own together on that team. Yeah. It, it sort of seems like as the team found a voice pretty quickly, individually, people also like matured into their voices or like a very comfortable freewheeling spontaneous style loose yeah. loose in the best way possible yeah um so uh, uh, i'm sure that there are people listening to this podcast who are looking forward to their own team experiences <laughs> and, and would love some sage advice about what that's like oh sure what has been i guess a positive outtake of uh years spent working with the great metal boy um what do you guys do right I think I think the kind of the simplest thing is that we make each other laugh and we love playing with each other. Like when I'm doing a metal boy show, I feel like I'm up there goofing off with my friends. And not in like a like flippant like fuck the audience way, just like a um let's have fun with each other. Like haha, oh pat, like sort of, you know, just I love I love watching them. They make me laugh. I want to get out there and make them laugh too. And it's just kind of like goofing off. It's it's that feeling of of trying to make your friends laugh. And there is that sort of like, um, I don't necessarily want to say competitiveness, but that just sort of the like one, like or even one upsmanship doesn't feel completely accurate. But just it's sort of going bit for bit with somebody. Mm-hmm. That's what Metal Boy feels like. Yeah. Um, I think we just all trust each other and it feels okay to focus on, like, the fun stuff and not worry. When I went first, first on Megawatt, I was terrified. I was like, I have to, every show has to be good and I have to prove myself. And I think that happens to a lot of people when you first start Megawatt, like, because now you're like, now I can get cut. So now every show I do has to be great because these are all counting towards, towards my grade as a Megawatt performer. And I think by the time Megawatt came around, that had sort of mellowed and it was more about just enjoying being up there with these people. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're all so funny and make me laugh and like give me energy is just, you know, feel, I feel very lucky. Uh, I keep on coming back to this image of like making a character move, animating a character, uh-huh. expressing them through their movement. And, and you know, when, when you're feeling that thing of like every show has to count, and every show does have to count. Yeah. This is like the crazy thing. <laughs> yeah. Every show does have to count. You you wanna you wanna hold yourself to that standard, and mm-hmm. you should feel kind of crappy when you shit the bed. <laughs> but when you're in that state of mind of guardedness mm-hmm. and um, kind of like a fragile thing of like this can be taken away from me, or like everyone is really important, you end up being very stiff mm-hmm. and very by the book and very derivative mm-hmm. and very 
judgmental, and your characters just don't have a life to them. They don't move. Yeah. And there's actually something, like, really great about being in that position where, like, the importance is kind of taken away a little bit. Yeah. That's what, I mean, it looked like happened with Metal Boy pretty early was it was more important to everybody on the team to get out there moving around a lot than it was to, like, get the show right. Yeah. And and consequently, you ended up remaking those shows in your own image with your own stamp on it. Yeah, I think... I think Metal Boy just sort of taught me that it was... I th- that Going back to that thing about the, the rules, that it was okay to break the rules and that that wasn't going to... Like, we weren't going to go out and break improv. Yeah. You know, there, there wasn't, like, an improv god that was going to feel like we had transgressed against him and punish us for it. It was just like, oh, oops, this, this thing that I didn't mean to happen happened and, oh, the show was fine mm-hmm. oh it was funny like it's better because this thing happened oh i guess right that's that's improv um that that is something that started to happen i think more on metal boy yeah um oh pat may is chasing a moth for 15 minutes <laughs> right yeah he's actually leaving the stage to go chase a moth okay pat may has been on every he and i have been on every megawatt team together we've been on three megawatt teams together and I don't ever want to be on a Megawatt team without Pat May. Yeah. It's hard not to have a good time when he's on he's stage. He's great. Yes. All, yes. All of my metal boys are great, even Suli. <sighs> all right. I got to come clean for a second. I got to say. <laughs> Just say it. I like Suli. I do, too. I find him funny and charming. Yeah. He's a smart Evan fella. Evan doesn't. Evan, no. Evan just drew his finger across his neck in a way that I think signifies violence. Uh, oh, boy. Evan is online right now. Uh, oh, he's blogging about Suli. I can't stop him. Oh, you can't God. stop him, Suli. Oh, it's a series of mean-spirited tweets. They're out there. They're, They're out, out there, there forever. They're out there. <laughs> I wonder like, if it is the thing of, like, I'm going to displease the god of improv, or if it's just more that thing of, like, you get trapped in your own feelings of inadequacy sometimes, and yeah, and uh, like lose sight of like a really because when you're improvising really well, mm-hmm. you're amazed at how you forgot how easy it feels to do. Yeah, good improv feels easy. And Bad then, improv feels like you are running uphill with like I don't know, like a scarf made out of skeletons <laughs> hanging off your neck. Good image, right? Exactly. Not a clumsy analogy at all. It's actually not a bad analogy because it does, if I may. <laughs> These forces from your past are clutching at your throat, trying to pull you back to where you have already been, preventing you from moving forward to the unknown in which you are currently headed. That is exactly what I meant. Yeah, it's a good image. <laughs> Dancing skeletons. Why Dancing are they so funny, everybody. Carly? They're the funniest know. thing. They sound like xylophones. I do. Yeah, when, when you're feeling that like inadequate thing, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's almost like you stepped over into like a parallel universe that's like half an inch to the left of this universe. And you're only half an inch away from everything you need, but you don't know how to get back there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, being it's trapped like a in a bad show is, is hard. It is. The, being trapped in a bad state of mind is even harder. Yeah. I think the only thing that can salvage a show that you feel bad about is just like letting go. Mm-hmm. That's, I think we tend to tighten up when we feel like, oh, I'm having a bad show. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And the only thing that'll get you out of it. And I've seen shows turn around is if you are just like, okay, 
I can't, un- I can't rewrite the last 10 minutes what's going on right now and just let go of your brain and just re- react as honestly as you can to whatever is happening on stage at that moment. Because it's, yeah, if you tighten up, you're going you're gonna to fuck it up even worse. Good advice. Thank you. I'm looking right at my microphone. All right, Carly. Yeah. Three things that you love about Chris Hastings. Go. Oh, my God. Um, the beard, the shoes, the hair. <laughs> you are so superficial. I love uh, it completely. No. Um, so uh, I would say one thing that I really uh, love about Chris is that he can make himself comfortable anywhere. And this is something that I really enjoy watching. And that sort of image that I always think of is he loves Amtrak trains. I am, I like feel trapped in any mode of transportation I'm in, but he, my image of Chris making himself comfortable is him sitting on an, in an Amtrak train with a little plastic cup of ice and pouring himself his little soda and then eating his bag of nuts and just relaxing and reading a book. And it's, it's like, that's all you need, buddy. You're, you're all set. Uh, so let's see, that's one. That's one. Number two is, um, is, like I said, he's very funny. I, wouldn't, I would not be able to tolerate a person that wasn't funny. Um, yeah, no need to gild that, Elise. Very funny, funny, very funny person. That's and two. That's two. And the third is that he, I see him actively trying to improve himself and increase his understanding as he gets older like he's he's already so uh evolved from when i first met him he was like great when i first met him but like as as we've spent time together he's just interested in learning things and understanding things in a deeper way and i see him like learning from mistakes in a way that i think some people especially people that are like comfortable with themselves kind of maybe feel like they can stop mm-hmm. learning things but he uh, he keeps like trying to understand things more I'm like talking not talking good about this but, but yeah you, that's you what were he does. doing fine until the phrase fine. not talking good <laughs> Jesus um, Evan can we get Tully in here please this is a wash tag me out Come Tully on the phone. tag me out <laughs> No, that's very. That's yes. number three. Yeah, it's just like I mean, I, I uh, especially seeing his um, sensitivity towards like women, and he's very keen to listen to my experiences as a woman and uh, try to be aware of that when he writes comedy. He, you know, and and when he 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 writes comics and like trying to be more representational with the comics that he writes. I think that's really valuable. Um, so that's number three. Mm-hmm. Uh, two more questions. Yeah. So as a as a woman uh-huh. with a strong voice at the magnet in both the improv and sketch world. Whoa. Who's the, that girl? Who's that girl? It's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess like my question is: Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel that you're given the opportunity to? speak your voice as you want, or is there still a long way for us to go? I do. I think... I definitely do. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, um, I also think... I hope this isn't 
a deflection on your question, but I also I think I got to the point in my life where I don't care anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, I think it's just part of becoming comfortable with yourself is just sort of being, realizing that it's okay to advocate for yourself um, and that doesn't mean that you're being mean or difficult. Like, you can stand up for yourself and if you feel like you're being marginalized, that you feel comfortable to, to say something. But I also think the fact that Magnet is actively trying to diversify and make it a safe and conducive environment for women and for, for a diverse group of improvisers and comedians like, is certainly helpful. Like, I feel like if I did have an issue to bring up, it would be heard mm-hmm. and dealt with. Um, but um, I talked about this a little bit with Ed a little while ago. Um, I came from like a really, I came from a like a background of very strong uh, vocal women, and it never occurred to me that that would be unacceptable mm-hmm. or weird. So it's just nice that I can exist that way at Magnet and feel like that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, on top of that too, there's also like the the kind of like catch twenty two of performing. I guess it's true of any art form. But, like, the people who are most memorable are the people who speak their voice mm-hmm. and speak their truth. And those are the ones that you end up, like, flocking to. They're the people who, like, have that light. Mm-hmm. But you learn this stuff by basically imitating other people. Yeah. So there's, like, this weird thing of you learning the skills of how to be a performer by kind of trying to filter your voice through other people's styles. Yeah. And kind of compromising yourself or not knowing where the limits are of how comfortable you can be to kind of come from your point of view um, uh, uh, until that point where, and I think it happens for everybody, and it probably happens differently for everybody, and yeah. I don't know how, what triggers it, but that point where you go, I just don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> I just don't care. Yeah. For me, it was the thing of like, at this point, <laughs> really, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to be any better than I am now so like I don't care right I yeah I mean like I definitely there were there were certainly points in my development as an improviser where I was doing a bad Alana Fishbein mm-hmm. impression um but I think those I think those moments are okay I think what that's doing is kind of tuning you into like what you find compelling and who exhibits those those traits and then it's just getting comfortable enough with those ideas that you can make them your own. I think it's a little bit like um, like a hermit crab. <laughs> you gotta like crawl into these like other shells. For, is that like, what they own. do? I think they do. I don't know. It's a poor metaphor. No, go with it. I believe you. Well, it, the metaphor doesn't make sense because they do this for their whole life and in my mind it's like you're, <laughs> you're like wearing other people's skins to eventually develop your own strength so that you're able to tear through that skin and now you have your own yeah. like, strong, robust self. I think so. And I think like there, there's actually... I, I can make an, al- an al- eh, analog to drawing here, which is that when I first started drawing portraits, I would copy... Well, not just portraits. I would just copy... Like, copying other people's art does help you... There is value to that. It does help you understand just by kind of tracing their lines and going through those motions it develops an understanding of like the subject matter a little bit in mm-hmm. a different way. It's not more valuable than studying from life. Like if I were to copy, you know, if I were to draw the David, 
it wouldn't be more valuable than me drawing a man posing like the David, but it, it is a different kind of understanding. And, and that imitation does sort of just work those muscles in a way that helps them develop so that they're strong enough to like lift your own ideas. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like learning a language by imitating other people yeah. speaking, and then you become fluent in the language, and then you're able to express your own right. thoughts. Like in, the, in that movie with Antonio Banderas. Great movie. Yeah. It's not the only scene I remember. Fabulous movie. We All won't right. name it. We won't name it. Uh, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's um, uh, a really good movie. Yeah, it's a treat. It was The Mask of Zorro. Anyway. <laughs> All right. We're going to spend five minutes now doing Monologue Hotspot. Here's okay. how it goes. I'm going to okay. give a suggestion. Uh-huh. And whatever that inspires in you, you will uh, uh, begin uh, talking about. Mm-hmm. And then at any point... Uh, um, I can interrupt you okay. to go off of some tangent of what you brought up that triggers a memory for me. Okay. And then at any point, you can interrupt me to go off on another tangent. And for five minutes, we're free to interrupt each other as often as we like. Okay. Um, so it's a little bit of like scattershot free association okay. to find out what is in both of our minds. Oh, my God. Are you ready for Monologue Hotspot, Carly Minardo? Yes, Louis Kornfeld. The suggestion, a rose by any other name. Oh, Okay, so this makes me think of Course of Looney Tunes. It makes me think of um, this Daffy cartoon called the Scarlet Pumpernickel. Um, and it was, it was a Chuck Jones cartoon where Daffy is... I, I didn't know what the Scarlet Pimpernel was when I was a kid, so I just like, thought the Scarlet Pumpernickel was a story about Daffy pitching a movie. My dad is a, a, a classic movie buff, and when I was a kid in the era of VHS tapes... He would be up late at night a lot of times taping stuff off of PBS. So I remember watching Pygmalion with uh, Leslie Howard and watching Scarlet Pimpernel with Leslie Howard <laughs> and watching uh, the Victor Fleming Treasure Island with Jackie Cooper and Wallace Beery. I grew up with all that stuff. My dad, along with loving old movies, is also a little bit of an Anglophile. So he mm. loved like Charles Lawton and like any British actor of that black and white era he was crazy yeah. about. An early, uh, an early kind of comedy nerd memory I have is of my sister and I watching Absolutely Fabulous downstairs in the den in my parents' house when we were kids. And uh, my mom coming down the stairs and saying, I didn't know you guys liked that show. How did you find out about this show? I love this show. And it was this cool moment where we had discovered this thing that we had in common with our mom uh, at the same time. There was an era where Comedy Central, before they had the kind of money that they have right now, basically just ran reruns of Absolutely Fabulous and reruns of The Kids in the Hall Mm -hmm. and uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 for a while and then a bunch of like real shit C-grade slapdash crap movies. So I got my education in Kids in the Hall by coming home after school in junior high and watching that uh, uh, every afternoon because they would do like a four-hour block of Kids in the Hall. Yeah, I thought that, um, I remember thinking I hated Kids in the Hall because at that time, Comedy Central was also putting out a lot of uh, the like kind of uh, Mike Myers years of SNL, and that I think was kind of representational of sketch comedy for me and Kids in the Hall was so weird which now is a thing I realize I'm, I love and, and my love for that type of sketch has like far outlived my interest in Saturday Night Live unless Lorne Michaels is listening in which case the I love it. The most pretentious thing I ever did was wear a black armband to school the day that Phil Hartman died. Uh, and I really was, of all the celebrity deaths 
in my life, that was the one that I was most inconsolable about. I was brokenhearted the morning he was killed. Yeah, I when um, when Robin Williams died, I remember I had to like give myself the day off because I was. It felt like a member of my family died, and I remember laying on my couch um, and watching. Uh, Dead Poet Society, which I had never seen. I had never seen it. And, and then I was watching it in this moment of like emotional rawness <laughs> and just bawling. And Chris would like come out of our office and just see me and sort of like, oh, the poor, poor thing. And I think the weird walking. thing about when a celebrity dies, and I experienced this big time with David Bowie, who I, I'm, I've never been much of a David Bowie fan until after he died, and then I realized how much I like David Bowie. Mm. But it's this feeling of a chunk being taken out of this sort of invisible assumption that you make about the world. And all of a sudden, now there's like a, there's a scratch on the surface of something that you didn't realize was just a surface. You just took it for granted. I think that that gives you a sense of a heartache. Yeah, that makes me, uh, that makes me think about the, one of my favorite scenes in any movie is the scene in This Is Spinal Tap where the band is at Graceland and they're trying to harmonize to Heartbreak Hotel, which is not a song that has harmonies in it. And it just reminds me of every band rehearsal I've ever been in. This sort of like, you're, you know, you're, you're acting, this, this act of like selfless art that you're making, but really like this is about your moment and they're all trying to have their moment <laughs> where they figure out the harmony. Like, it's like a dick thing to do when someone's singing and then you have to be the one to add the harmony to it. It's just, such, it feels like such a kind of like hand over hand move. And there's that ego again. There's yeah. that pride, that vanity. And that is Monologue Hospital for five Whoa. minutes. Yes. We did good. We sure did. All right, Carly, we're going to round this conversation out. I'd like you to improvise a scene for me now. Okay. Now, this is called improvising a very serious scene <laughs> opposite a jar of pickles. Here's how it goes. <laughs> Evan is now coming to present you with your scene partner, which is a literal <laughs> jar of pickles. This is a uh, B&G New York deli style <laughs> jar of pickles, and this is going to be your scene partner. I knew this was coming, but I wasn't prepared. Yeah. Uh, 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 no one ever is. This is. It's a nice looking jar of pickles. I'll it is. Be it's honest four dollars. Four dollars. Not a bad price for the number of pickles you get in this one. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give you a scenario, and then you have two minutes to improvise the most serious scene you can. The most serious scene with a jar of pickles. Here's the situation. <clears throat> you and this jar of pickles have been uh, uh, dating for like two or three years now. It's been kind of kind of dragging on. Okay. And two of you moved in together about a year and a half ago. And, <laughs> Things pretty quickly turned a little bit, a little bit not great. Okay. The jar of pickles um, has a little bit of like a depressive personality. He gets like really down and non-communicative when he feels that way. So there's like lengthy stretches of time where the jar of pickles just doesn't really like talk to you. Okay. Things have gotten pretty tense with you for the past few months. In fact, you let the jar of pickles take the bedroom. You sleep on the futon every night for the last uh, uh, three months. Oh, wow. About a month and a half ago... (laughs) You began having an affair with a co-worker at the office. The two of you had been kind of like flirting, making eyes with each other for a while, and just in this fit of like, you know what, I, I, I don't have to suffer with my life. It's not my place to make you work your stuff out. You began this romance with this guy. Okay. And so now you're coming home, and uh, the jar of pickles senses that, that there's like real deep tension. And so the jar of pickles has kind of interrupted this tension to ask you to marry the jar of pickles. 
And in this scene, Carly, you're going to have to come clean and tell the Jar Pickles that uh, um, oh my God. this relationship is just not working out. Okay, so the Pickles just asked me to marry them, or we're going to find out? The Pickles asked you to marry them last night. Last night. And, and uh, you took the, the night to sleep on it, okay. on the futon, and now you're coming home from work and the Jar of Pickles is waiting for you. Okay. Not only that, but the Jar of Pickles has made dinner. Oh, God. Wash the dishes and everything. It's the first time in a long time that yeah. Jar of Pickles has done anything nice. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just checking in with the Pickles. Hey, you really didn't have to. You really didn't have to do this. Okay. Yeah. No. 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 Okay. Yes. I'm going to. Sit, I'm sitting down. I'm sitting down. It looks great. Um, I didn't know you knew how to make this. Um. Yeah. No. Uh, okay. Yes. I'm trying it. I do. I want to talk about what happened last night. I'm eating it. It's delicious. Yeah. No, schnitzel goes great with, with everything. Okay, so I, I did think about it. You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't want you to hear my answer and think that I'm shutting you down or that I didn't consider what it would be like to say yes to this. And I am saying no. <laughs> Stop. Don't cry. Come on. I didn't see you now. The problem is I don't remember the last time we had a real conversation, so I can't even tell if you're crying right now because you're trying to get me on your side and you're manipulating me, or if you're crying because you're imagining your life without me, which, frankly, you've had a lot of time to do before now. Don't throw the schnitzel at I'm hungry. I'm going to eat it. Well, I think you're being a dick. No, you are, because you, you, you married me, you, you, you want me to marry you, and you proposed to me last night, and you made this big speech about how much I mean to you and how you don't see me, and, and you know that, but you're not seeing me now. You don't even know why I said no. You're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. Get off the table. Come on. Get down off the table. I'm not, you're being hysterical. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know. I'll I'll give you, like, do you want to know my reasons for saying no? Or do you want to sob and pound on the table? Did you think this was going well? I can't remember the last time you you touched me. (laughs) And that has been a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. Yay! Oh, I'm just hugging the pickles. Yeah, now. the pickles are a very considerate scene partner, and they're not nearly that bad. My favorite part of that scene is that the pickles had the line, "You're being a dick." <laughs> Will you marry me? No, I don't think it's best. You're being a dick. <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Carly. Thank you, Louis. Uh, uh, fabulous. Anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah, I would love to. Yes. Um, okay. So. <laughs> Let me just get okay. So I'm gonna be um, I'm gonna be playing some shows with my dark little corner. Uh, they are a wonderful comic uh, punk band that I'm a part of. Metal Boy plays every Wednesday night. Uh, the cast, a wonderful group of ladies that I play with. Uh, we play every Saturday night, and it's a really great time. We do a different genre or style every week. 
Um, I also will be starting my sketch season soon with Dinosaur Jones. You can find us on Monday nights. And then last but not least, uh, TJ and Blood, my duo with Branson Reese, we play sporadically at the theater. And it's always, if you want to see two cartoon characters do improv, that's what you'll see. You know, for someone who did not see themselves doing comedy, you sure got a busy schedule coming up. <laughs> I'm obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> Carly Minardo, folks. Thank you so much for being thank here, Thank you Carly. guys very much. Uh, thank you all for listening. A couple of other big thank yous. First off, to our producer, Evan Ford Barden. To today's guest engineer, Evan Ford Barden. To our executive producer, Ed Herbstman. And to all of you wonderful people for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please give us a positive shout-out on iTunes. We sure do appreciate it. If you like the new format and would like to contribute a few suggestions, either for a topic to discuss in Monologue Hotspot or perhaps for an extremely serious context for a serious <laughs> scene improvised opposite a jar of pickles, hit us up on the old Twitter. That's Magnet Theater Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is that how that works? I don't know. I don't know. I believe it was Cornfell. Thank you again so much for listening. One final thank you to the delightful Carly Minardo. That's all, folks. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Splat. Yay. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.